Hello, and welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am here with my co-host, Daniel Larison, and we are proud to bring you independent analysis and experts each week that challenge the blobby status quo, particularly at a time when Washington and the mainstream media seem to be mobilizing for conflict and brooking no contradiction to the sanctioned narratives around Ukraine and Russia. In our second half, we will be talking with Sina Azodi of George Washington University about the stalled Iran nuclear talks. But right now, let's examine the tale of two Americas. One offered by Washington University professor Daniel Bessner is of an active strategy of U.S. primacy, one reflected in the violent and hubristic history of national expansion, foreign wars and entanglements, which, as he says in his new brief for the Quincy Institute, primacists believe is necessary for world order. He says primacists believe domestic and global peace and prosperity depend on the United States being the world's strongest power. And he's critical of this in his brief. Furthermore, he says the globe cannot peacefully encompass a plurality of powers and interests. It can accommodate only one power that rules through domination or what is euphemistically termed leadership when the U.S. is the hegemon. This is why promises are so worried about China. They view international relations as a, quote, zero-sum game. On the other hand, we have Robert Kagan, proud hegemon advocate and one would say keeper of the flame who has argued time and again that without U.S. global leadership, a.k.a. military primacy, the liberalization achieved over the last century would dissolve into factions of authoritarianism and war, or like he likes to say, the jungle. In his latest article for Foreign Affairs, Kagan, who as a neoconservative elite was one of the Washington's most popular intellectual proponents of the Iraq war and global war on terror, argues that the U.S. is not a hegemon with a sphere of influence over Europe and East Asia because of military expansionism, coercion, or geopolitical superiority, but because other nations want us to be the most powerful kid on the block. In his words, quote, many Americans tend to equate hegemony with imperialism, but the two are different. Imperialism is an active effort by one state to force others into its sphere, whereas hegemony is more a condition than a purpose. A militarily, economically, and culturally powerful country exerts influence on other states by its mere presence. The way a larger body in space affects the behavior of smaller bodies through its gravitational pull. Even if the United States was not aggressively expanding its influence in Europe, and certainly not through its military, the collapse of the Soviet empire or Soviet power enhanced the attractive pull of the United States and its democratic allies. The growth of U.S. influence and spread of liberalism were less a policy object, objective of the United States than the, national, the natural consequences of that shift. So where the U.S. went wrong is letting Russia push, 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 whether on Georgia in 2008 or taking Crimea in 2014, when Russia should have been put on notice more aggressively that its authoritarian campaign to become the new hegemonic power would not be acceptable to Eastern Europe. In Kagan's view, you just don't get to be a hegemon by being a bully. They have to want you. And right now, Europe, including Eastern Europe, wants America and America's values. 
So, Dan, it sounds like Kagan wants us to go to war with Russia because that's what the world wants us to do. Is that is that what he's saying here? Well, he certainly wants us to go to war with Russia, and he, he wanted us to go to war with Russia several times over the last uh, 13, 14 years. Uh, it's, I, I don't know that it's so much because it's what the world wants, but it, it's because he thinks it's what uh, being the hegemon requires. That, right. you know, th- this is the, the, the title of his piece is The Price of Hegemony, and the price of hegemony is apparently getting into potentially nuclear wars over peripheral conflicts. Uh, and, and which is why I said in, in the response that I wrote on uh, my site, uh, the price of hegemony is too damn high, because there's there's simply no justification in terms of U.S. security interests or allied security interests or even European security broadly understood uh, to, to have the, the U.S. and its allies go to war over South Ossetia or to go to war over Crimea. The, these are not things that have ever mattered for our national security before, and they certainly don't matter to our national security today. And if and then the only way that you can can sort of trick yourself into thinking that it matters is if you believe that this has this is somehow our responsibility as the hegemon that goes above and beyond anything that we have to worry about in terms of our own national interests. And so this is this is the sort of the the, the bait and switch that hegemonists like Kagan do. They'll say. Uh, well, we have to do this in order to be the hegemon, uh, but oh, but hegemony is just a condition that just exists. Right? We, we don't have to pursue it, except that we do have to pursue it, and we have to do it this way. And you, you need to do what we want uh, in order to uphold the hegemony that supposedly just persists on its own. And so it's it's a it's a bit of a a deceptive argument, uh, but but the, the consequences of following him down the road he wants to go are quite clear. It would mean risking nuclear war not once, not twice, but three times in the space of or fourteen years uh, over countries that have never mattered for our national security. Uh, and he also applies the same logic to dealing with China. So presumably, right. it, it it applies not only to defending treaty allies, but it would apply to defending Taiwan. It would apply to defending Vietnam, probably, uh, if that were to come up. Uh, there's there's theoretically no limit to where our security interests end if you believe that we have this obligation to uphold order everywhere. And, and this is why I think people understandably recoil from Kagan's vision when it's actually spelled out in practice what it requires. Uh, there may be many people who sort of like the, the sound of the idea of world order. They, they, like, uh, they like talking about preserving liberal values uh, but then you see the bill that would come due if you did it the way that people like Kagan want to do it, uh, and it's simply unacceptable. And it would it would lead us to, to utter ruin. Uh, you know, whereas their their fantasies in the Middle East have only led us to partial ruin. Uh, they, they they would lead us to, to complete ruin uh, if we were to get into some of these great power conflicts that they they're clearly uh, eager to get into. Right, and we have seen the bill. It might be a partial bill. Um, and Kagan, in his previous writings, in his books, and his, his articles, have pretty much dismissed the failures of not only the Iraq War, but of Vietnam. And, you know, it, it might not be a bill on paper, though we're talking trillions of dollars, in, you know, if we're looking at the GWAT, uh, but in human lives. I mean, looking at the millions of lives lost in Vietnam and Laos and, and Cambodia, and then moving 
uh, 40 years later to the GWAT. And I think the, the death toll there it, of all told civilians and combatants is nearly 900,000, I believe, uh, when, um, you know, as, as, as far as the, the latest cost of war uh, tallies and 350,000 of those are civilian deaths. And like I said, trillions of dollars in untold costs, future costs, whether it be veterans um, who have lifetime injuries or the environmental costs in these countries where we have just been pummeling with military hardware for the last, you know, 20, 30 years. Um, this is a bill. This is a toll. Uh, but Robert Kagan dismisses uh, these as aberrations on the road to what he believes is the, the liberal world order and the American um, obligation to not only defend it, uh, but to, you know, um, lead it. And I find it very paternalistic. And in this particular article that in Foreign Affairs, What Price Hegemony, you know, he talks about uh, the United States as though it's almost a reluctant hegemon. You know, we, we didn't yeah. ask for this. Uh, we, th this gravitational pull uh, that we've had because of our values and our open economy had just brought in these former Soviet republics looking for us to uh, protect them and show them the way. And I find that obviously disingenuous. Daniel Bessner and his, his uh, brief would disagree uh, with um, that uh, particular portrayal of he hegemony, but I, I think you hit, hit it on the head when you said this is like music to the ears of most Americans on the surface. They want to see us as that beacon of light. They want to see us as leading a liberal, a classical liberal world order uh, with, with values and uh, with uh, open markets and trade and all those good things. Um, but they don't want to hear the real ugly part of that, which is that we have tended to see that as an opening uh, for us to militarily engage to ensure that 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 leadership um, is maintained. And so, um, yeah, it's it's a matter of people calling Kagan out on the carpet uh, for for his particular prescriptions. And the, the Bessner piece was very useful. I mean, it was useful that it came out around the same time as the, the Kagan piece uh, because they, they're, they are really talking about two sides of the same coin uh, where, where Bessner identifies correctly uh, that there has been this constant drive for dominance. And then he makes a point of, of emphasizing the, the word dominance in the way he describes it. Uh, and, and you can find, you can see that in our policy towards Iraq uh, in the 90s, and then and then again in the early 21st century under Bush, uh, and that that the Iraq War itself is not an aberration. You know, contra what Kagan and other interventionists like to say, is not a, an aberration from the larger strategy that we have been pursuing. It is an expression of that strategy, and we're seeing that same strategy unfolding again in East Asia. And and what uh, what I really liked about the Bessner uh, brief was that he was pointing out how this same drive for dominance is leading us towards a collision with China that we don't have to have. Because even if China rises to become the, the leading power in East Asia, as one would expect that it would, given its population, its size, its location, uh, that there's, there's really nothing we can do to stop that short of using force 
to try to, to beat them down. Uh, so that if we if we insist on maintaining privacy in East Asia, if we insist on dominance, that means conflict, uh, and and it, it it comes from the same place as the the recklessness that drove the Iraq War, believing that we have to uh, exert our will and and use force to show everyone that that we're uh, in charge, uh, and anyone that gets in the way of that is going to be uh, beaten down. That's that's the real danger from this this conceit that we not only have a responsibility as a, a world hegemon, but that we that we, this gives us the right to use force whenever we see fit, and and that to my mind is is indistinguishable from imperialistic hubris, uh, and so the the distinction that Kagan wants to make between hegemony and imperialism breaks down in practice because you can't actually preside as the hegemon without acting like an imperialist. And that's that's the, the bottom line. If you don't want our government acting that way, if you don't want our government fighting imperial wars for, for dubious uh, sounding goals like maintaining world order, uh, then you have to reject that assumption about our role in the world and you have to, to look at a, a more uh, limited role for us in the world with a, a much less aggressive and less ambitious strategy. Right. And, you know, he talks about he talks as though uh, there there's very little uh, transactional. They, there's there's little transaction uh, in terms of our influence and what people what other countries get out of it, and what they're expected to do in, in return for for protection and whatnot. And all you need to do is look at the Iraq war. And, you know, uh, we talked about this coalition of the willing, but we literally invaded another country illegally uh, when we couldn't get the proper um, what do you say assignation from uh, the from the UN we, we went ahead with it uh, we expected other countries to follow we expected other countries to send troops um, to, to physically help us in that war do you think all those countries that that sent troops really felt as though Saddam Hussein was such a major threat? to their nations that they had to, to send the spare number of troops that they did. No, they, the, 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 the bill was due, so to speak. And we were not only willing um, to give them uh, military aid or other things for their country in, in response to that, but they knew in the future, if they needed anything from us, that they needed, they needed to cooperate right then and there. And we see that, uh, we saw that in Yemen, um, we, we saw we actually got taken advantage of uh, where the president of Yemen made um, his disputes, internal disputes out to be uh, Al-Qaeda threats. And because he knew that we'd come in and we'd we'd, um, we'd use force and we'd, we'd give aid um, to, to help him uh, in his uh, was it was with the Houthis, I believe, at the time during the war on terror. And um, so a lot of the countries take advantage of this, too. But. For Kagan to act as though um, this is all about a sphere of influence that just happens to arrive, this pull of gra- this gravitational pull because um, of our values, a lot of it's transactional. Um, they know it, and and we know it. We take advantage of it, and then we call in the chits uh, when we when we want to um, invade or bully um, in, in in other parts of the of the of the world. Right. I think we'll, we're going to see more of that if we get into more of a, a 
confrontational relationship with the Chinese. Right. Uh, we're going to start demanding uh, more and more contributions, both military and financial, from our allies and clients. And uh, then, and we're I think we're going to find that maybe not all of them are quite as willing to to pony up as they were when we were fighting against third-rate dictatorships. Uh, one of the things that we've already learned with the situation with Russia, excuse me, is that a lot of countries that we might think would be on our side in a clear-cut case of aggression mm-hmm. uh, are much more interested in hedging their bets. And, I, and when it comes to China, we're going to see even more of that. guest today is Sina Azori. He is a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council and a PhD candidate in international affairs at George Washington University. His research interests include international security, nuclear non-proliferation, and U.S.-Iranian relations. He is a frequent commentator on both English and Persian-speaking media, including BBC Persian Service, Sky News, Al Jazeera, TRT World, and I-24. His analysis has appeared on Columbia University's Journal of International Affairs, Arms Control Association's Center for Strategic International Studies, and the Middle East, Middle East Institute. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's great to have you on. Uh, I've been reading your stuff for a long time, so I'm glad we finally uh, managed to get you on here. Um, the, uh, the Trump administration added the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps to the list of foreign terrorist organizations in 2019. Since then, anyone that has ever served in the IRGC, including those conscripted into service, has effectively been branded as having worked for a terrorist group. Uh, you recently wrote about the effects that the designation has on Iranians who try to travel, work, or study in the United States. Uh, and so tell us, how does that designation affect them in practical terms? It be, I mean, look, when you're immigrating to the U.S., and I had to go through the same process that, you know, uh, you have, when you fill out the application, uh, uh, they ask you, actually, that whether you have ever been a member of a terrorist organization. Now, for any Iranian who was conscripted by the IRGC, they have to uh, check, yes, I have uh, worked for, uh, I have been a member of a terrorist organization. Either you have to tell the truth, which bars you from the United States, or uh, you lie, which means you have lied on a a federal application, and the U.S. government uh, uh, has its own investigation, and they specifically ask, uh, all Iranian, male Iranians who want to travel uh, to the U.S., where they've done their military service, right? They specifically ask whether you have done your service in IRGC or Artish. I was asked the same question, and they were relieved uh, to hear that I served in the uh, Iranian Air Force at Artish. So this is the problem. Um, and recent, we had another issue uh, with uh, an Iranian singer, a resident of Canada, who wanted to travel to the United States and he had a visa. He comes to the United States, he gets detained, and then he's sent back to Canada because some 20 years ago, he was conscripted by the IRGC. And one thing I do want to emphasize is that uh, you, you don't get to choose where you want to do your service, right? They pick you randomly, it's up to them. You have no say in where I want to do my military service. So that's the problem. They're being branded uh, as uh, or and punished for something that they haven't done uh, or they're not uh, 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 guilty of, of, of such crime. Right, absolutely. And there was a really good report from The Intercept recently detailing a lot of these cases of, of Iranians trying to come from Canada who have similarly uh, been barred and have been 
uh, harassed uh, over this issue. Uh, and, and this has, of course, uh, created a lot of uh, not just harassment and, and headaches for people, but it has really disrupted lives. Uh, and so we, that's, that's uh, well, one of the, the important things to keep in mind when we talk about this designation. While it is, in many practical respects, as far as the IRGC is concerned, a, a symbolic issue in terms of what they're able to do in terms of financing, it does have real effects on, on people elsewhere. Uh, now, re- removing the designation has become one of the last sticking points in the nuclear negotiations in Vienna. Uh, the Trump administration put the IRGC on the list specifically to make it more difficult to revive the nuclear deal after they quit it. Uh, yes. Now it appears that the Biden administration is unwilling to take them off the list. Uh, why do you think the Biden administration is uh, so reluctant to do that? And, and what are the consequences if they don't? Well, I think it's politically uh, uh, expensive uh, for the Biden administration to do uh, to lift the sanctions, especially, I mean, we're entering a, a elections here. Uh, uh, we have uh, Republicans uh, um, arguing against lifting the sanctions on our IRGC. We have even Democrats arguing against it. So Biden has to pay a, a high political price for lifting the sanctions. Um, so um, in my perspective, it's a political um, issue, not a technical issue. Because, as you know, IRGC has already been designated under so many um, uh, uh, lists, the last one being the SDGT, especially designated uh, global terrorist, right? So technically, it doesn't change anything. For Iranians, it, it's a matter of name that they want uh, uh, an important part of the, uh, the state to be removed from a, a you know, FTO, the Foreign Terrorist Organization. So I think that's the issue with that. Um, I honestly think that Iranians are just doing their usual, I mean, they're just being Iranian. They want to negotiate until the very last minute, see if they can get any concessions, um, because it is in the interest of uh, the Raisi administration to uh, come out and say that I got a better deal than Rouhani. So uh, I think at the end of the day, they will not kill uh, the negotiations for uh, this FTO. Even I remember a few, uh, I think it was a couple of weeks ago that Amir Abdullahian, the, the foreign minister, quoted some IRGC officials saying that they have told us that if, you know, the issue of FTO is something that, you know, stops you from reaching the deal, it's okay. Um, uh, we're willing to do the sacrifice, Right. So, I mean, he, was, he had to go back and say, no, I didn't say this. But at the end of the day, I think that if the only remaining issue is IRGC designation, they will work with it. Um, it's just a matter of uh, uh, who blinks uh, first, whether the Iranians would blink first and, and concede, or is it the U.S.? Hi, Sina. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, it's great to talk with you. Um, Thank you for having me. Great. Um, you know, we, we, we're, we're constantly writing about what Washington thinks, uh, what Tehran thinks about the deal and, and the benefits to, to, to either side for getting in or not uh, or back in a renewed agreement. Can you tell us at all what Iranians, regular Iranians think about the fact that the United States withdrew from the deal um, and that there is this protracted 
uh, negotiation to get back into it. Are Iranians generally supportive of uh, the JCPOA, or are they uh, or are they seeing things differently now that you know we've been out of it for for two years? Well, truth to be told, I mean, it depends uh, 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 what kind of Iranian you're, 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 you're talking about. I mean, we have Iranian Trumpists, uh, uh, and just, just like any other Trumpists, they think that Trump is some, you know, God-sent uh, leader who has come to save us from the tyranny of the mullahs. And it's better to uh, suffocate uh, uh, um, and, and, and get rid of the mullahs at any cost. Um, so we have those Iranians. We have them in Iran. We have them in the States. We have them in, in many places. But there are other uh, group of Iranians that, and I, I, hear, I hear them quite often on Clubhouse when I listen to them, that at the end of the day, Iran was sticking to, to its agreement. Uh, it was implementing the JCPOA uh, in good faith, I believe. But it was the U.S., that broke its promises and withdrew from the agreement and prevented others from implementing the, you know, the agreement. And, and when we're discussing Iran, we're just, I mean, we're discussing a country in the Middle East and in that part of the world, when you commit to something, when you promise something, you have to stand by your own word, right? So when you withdraw from the agreement and you break your promise, then it's something that looks bad on the U S. Um, and, um, I know that uh, um, average Iranians are suffering under sanctions. But there's no question in that. And anyone who says no, it's, uh, it's ha sanctions have nothing to do with the suffering of Iranians. Either I think they're not being honest or they don't know. Um, so, I, but if I want to say uh, what really Iranians think, uh, I think that they, Iranians who live in Iran, majority of them, uh, uh, have seen the benefits of the agreement without actually knowing that they've seen the benefits. Uh, Rouhani administration was able to uh, sell oil, bring the revenue inside the country, pay the salaries of government officials, but ever since uh, uh, Trump withdrew, you're seeing more um, government employees not being not being paid. Their uh, retirees have not been have not been paid. They are they are on the street. They're uh, protesting that they haven't received their pensions. So yes, people are suffering absolutely, and it it, it benefits the average Iranian once the deal is restored. Hopefully, are you concerned uh, that by um you know, the very uh, nature of the agreement being an executive, um, an executive agreement with the other countries involved and not a treaty that's ratified by the Senate, that the next administration, a say it's a Republican administration, has already vowed to tear it up, whatever Biden um, agrees to uh, once they get into office. Um, I guess my question is, um, are you concerned that uh, any agreement made today uh, might be in peril? We'd be back right at the same point uh, two years from now. Uh, do you think that there could have been a way to make this a stronger um, uh, Senate ratified treaty instead 
so that both parties could stick to it um, or all parties could stick to it? Is well, it doomed? Well, <laughs> sure. I, I mean, I mean, look, even in the case of treaties, I mean, the Trump administration showed that it has no regards for treaties. That's true. Um, I mean, uh, think of the 1955 Treaty of Amity and Consular Relations between Iran and the U.S. that for decades it was the really this uh, source of litigation between Iran and the U.S. Both countries used it as a legal basis to take to the other side uh, to the court, right? But the uh, Trump administration withdrew from it. So um, even with a treaty, I don't think you can really uh, uh, rely on whether it will continue. I think the only solution, and I uh, is that is that one Iranians make sure that they stick to the agreement uh, as they did in the past. And second, and again, this is on Iranians, that make sure uh, uh, foreign companies are um, really entangled with the Iranian economy in a way that the costs of withdrawing from the agreement, and I'm saying like the costs will be too expensive for a future U.S. president to, to just withdraw from it. And, and Trump... He, I mean, that was one of the arguments that he was making that we're not seeing, we're not getting any benefits from it. It's the other countries that are getting benefits. We're not. So, in a way, I think Iranians should uh, um, implement the deal or or try to engage the U.S. Uh, to American companies to come out to and invest in Iran. Um, I know it's difficult because of so many other issues. But somehow, by engaging the U.S. and entangling American companies, you can make the cost of withdrawing from the deal uh, too high. Turning uh, to your your own research, what you've been working on in your studies, uh, your own research focuses on the origins of Iran's nuclear program and how it has developed over the decades. Based on your research, can you tell us why has the development of its own nuclear program been so important for the Iranian government, uh, regardless of regime type? Mm -hmm. It's funny you mention that because I just I just had a lecture on it yesterday, uh, and it was uh, the title of my lecture was uh, the search for uh, prestige and security. So it's both of them. Depending on what era you're discussing, it has been either prestige of having an industrialized nuclear program, uh, which would put Iran on par with you know Germany or Japan, or it has been security. When Iran started its nuclear program, they had no idea what they wanted to do. They didn't even have the infrastructure to expand the program. I mean, they would import it. They had purchased equipment from the U.S., and this is 1950s. But they didn't have the people to operate them. Right? They didn't have electricity to operate them, right? Um, so it, they started the program because the Shah was simply interested in, in, in nuclear technology. It was something modern. Uh, the French had it, everybody, all the great powers had it, so he was interested in it too. By 1970s, Iranians saw the potential um, uh, security benefits of having a nuclear program that could be turned into a military program should things change. And Shah specifically tells his nuclear chief, Etemad, that we can't stop the Soviets from attacking us. They have thousands of nuclear weapons, and we, there's no way we can stop them. But if things change in our region, uh, then it says, why not, right? And things did change in the region uh, in the future. 
Um, you have 1980s, you have the revolutionary uh, uh, leaders coming in. Everything with the nuclear program is bad. It's Western. It makes us, it makes Iran dependent on the West. It's expensive, but they quickly saw the security benefits of having a nuclear deterrent program. And they repeatedly pointed out that without nuclear weapons or nuclear deterrent, we can't rely on an international community uh, uh, to come to our assistance should another country invade us again and use its chemical weapons on us as the Iraqis did. Um, but then by 2003, they switched again. They, they put aside their alleged nuclear weapons program. They shifted again with having this uh, uh, industrialized nuclear program that would um, symbolize Iran's modernization. And you see this in the wars of Khamenei, which is quite interesting in 2005, and this is, I mean, I mean, 16 years ago uh, uh, by now, that he had pointed out that some backward country in the region, and he was referring to Saudi Arabia, and this is his quote, not mine, some backward country in the region says, if Iran wants nuclear technology, we want it too. And it says, go do it if you can, right? So for Iranian leaders, it's a matter of that we are, more, we are an industrializing country, we're different from the region, and we deserve the respect um, and acknowledgement of other great powers. And even now, think of it, Iran is sitting at a negotiation table with a superpower with, uh, and five great powers at the same negotiation table, So, which brings, again, prestige for a, a third-tier power, if you will. Sure. And, uh, and, and the, the nuclear deal itself uh, was widely considered when it was fully enforced to be one of the most successful non-proliferation agreements uh, negotiated up until that point. Um, now, now it hangs by a thread. Uh, we, we're not sure what will happen to it. Uh, how big of a blow to the cause of non-proliferation would the collapse of the deal be uh, if that were to happen? And how concerned are you that the Iranian government might then choose to leave the non-proliferation treaty in response to that? I think Iranians could, I mean, I mean, they, they, they have threatened for a while that they would uh, leave the NPT, but I don't think they will. At the same time that they uh, resent the international system and how the system is, is uh, designed, they want to be part of this international system because it brings them legitimacy. If Iran uh, leaves the NPT, it would look bad on them as... Uh, uh, as a pariah state next to North Korea, and they don't want that. So, yes, Iranians say, say many things that we're going to do this and that or just leave the NPT, but I don't think eventually um, they will. Although you see a number of, uh, of these you know, uh, Iranian nationalists coming out and saying that joining the NPT was uh, from the beginning a, a mistake. It was a wrong decision by Iran to join the NPT because we accepted this discriminatory agreement that has put us in a not have uh, a group of countries, right? That's what they believe. But now that they are part of the, uh, they're a signatory to the NPT, I don't think that they will. But referring to the JCPOA, I think the one important significance of the agreement is that for 40 years, Iranians, Americans could not sit at a negotiation table and, and reach an agreement. But JCPOA fundamentally changed that, that you would see the foreign minister of Iran sitting next to U.S. Secretary of State. They shook hands. They reached an agreement, albeit extremely difficult, 
but they could reach an agreement, which says that if Iran and the U.S. sit and talk directly, they can resolve their problems. That is why you see countries like Saudi Arabia and Israel where uh, were uh, uh, scared or, or resentful of this agreement because it showed that Iran and the U.S. can't resolve their problems if they sit and talk. That, I think, is the most significant aspect of the JCPOA. Had Iran and the U.S. continued their uh, talks and, and JCPOA had, had proved to be uh, successful in terms of you know, uh, ne- ne- the talks between Iran and the U.S., I think Iran and the U.S. could have resolved other issues too. I think that, that is, it's still possible in the future, if, if this deal can be revived, that it could serve as a foundation for more engagement going forward. Uh, provided that obviously both governments uh, are interested in pursuing that. Uh, we're, we're out of time today. Thank you so much, Sina Zodi, uh, for giving us your time and for your insights. Uh, we appreciate it. And uh, follow him at uh, Zodiac83 on Twitter uh, for more of that. Thank you for having Thank you. me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.